Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. We are working in decentralized energy, so operating independently of the nationalized electricity network. So our priority is to produce electricity um, at a community level. So we're addressing not just the needs of households, but also more importantly, um, the needs of businesses. Um, and the reason for that is that businesses uh, need more power and they also uh, can use it to be much more productive. So it's basically to create jobs, to use machinery, to extend their working hours. And that brings much more income uh, and uh, economic activity into these rural areas. To go there and say this is what you need uh, without understanding their their needs uh, problem could be counterproductive. Uh, so there are social, uh, you know, so there are religious relationships. There are uh, you know caste systems embedded into that system. You have within the same village you have segregated societies. Uh, so to bring everyone on board has been a, quite a challenge as well. Uh, but we are working around that. And then, uh, uh, so related to that, we also wanted to bring as many women as possible into our value chain. And given the status of women in India, uh, where it's a male-dominated society, so that hasn't been easy as well. Even while we did our interviews and group discussions, the women were prevented from like voicing their opinions. Uh, we wanted to learn more from them. Uh, so yeah, that is another challenge that we constantly face in these rural communities. I'm very pleased today to introduce Ahmed Sarogi and Clementine Chambon, founders of Orja Solutions. Orja is a social enterprise that enables underserved rural communities in India to transform their crop waste into clean energy and biochar using hybrid solar and biomass powered microgrids. Some 450 million people in rural India do not have access to reliable electricity. Orja's mission is to provide clean energy access with a particular focus on local communities while promoting sustainable local economic development. Thank you both uh, very much for taking the time today to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. It's, uh, I'm very excited to uh, talk to you and to hear more about uh, your business and uh, how you're approaching uh, off-grid energy uh, in India and uh, some of the some of the challenges you've had on your way, some of the successes, and, and also your vision for the future. Well, thanks very much for having us. So um, tell, tell me a little bit about you know, the, the history of, 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 of this project. When did you first realize that there was a, 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 a particular challenge, and how did you go about thinking about uh, solving that? Um, so our journey really started when Clementine and I first met. This was about two years ago on a climate entrepreneurship uh, workshop here in Europe, uh, which is which was sponsored by Climate Kick, uh, one of EU's largest initiative on addressing climate change. Um, so coming from a development background uh, and also from India, I already had the context and knew that energy is a big issue, and it also prevents other developmental uh, challenges from taking shape because these are all integrated problems. Unless you have access to energy, you cannot you know, promote industry and therefore create jobs and uh, new businesses. It impacts health and education. You cannot store you know, life-saving drugs in rural parts of the country. 
um, children don't have access to uh, electricity to study longer or use laboratories and computers, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it lends itself to several different uh, development challenges. So I brought this idea when I met Clementine. Uh, she had a background in bioenergy, uh, pursuing a PhD. I had lots of experience uh, with consultancies and businesses. So we thought, you know, we can combine these complementary skills and then build something together. Uh, so a, a solution that will help scale energy access in off-grid and under-electrified areas in India very quickly. Um, so uh, it was a five-week program. We developed our first business plan there, which was then vetted by climate scientists, other industry experts. Uh, and then after the program ended, we uh, decided to uh, make it commercial. Great, great. How much did you know about, um, I mean, you mentioned you, that you understood uh, the problem at a generic level, I guess. Uh, how much did you know about the problem in terms of, uh, you know, more detailed uh, picture on the ground in particular environments uh, or geographical contexts? Uh, so, yeah, as far as de detailed understanding of it, of course, we did not have it. And therefore, before actually creating the uh, product and actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, having a business model in place, we decided to first go to the field and we spent about two months interviewing local communities, uh, pretty much all stakeholders that are involved, starting from the local government uh, all of its agencies, uh, and then also the community itself, uh, uh, members of the village, to first understand what is their need, if energy provision is a priority for them, and if it does come to them, what use does it have for them. Only after having logged in all of this data, coming back and analyzing it, that's when we actually developed uh, you know, uh, the, the product and service that we would like to uh, provide. Um, so yes, the idea was to do some sort of a needs assessment and also make it participative, involving the people in the solution itself rather than, you know, creating a solution and going to them. Right, right. Now, um, what, what is your technical solution? And I know there are various different uh, solar-powered offerings, off-grid offerings. What, what is your solution? Why is it distinctive? How is it distinctive? And how did you come to choose it? <clears throat> Yeah, so of course, as you mentioned, we are working in decentralized energy, so operating independently of the nationalized electricity network. So our priority is to produce electricity um, at a community level, so we're addressing not just the needs of households, but also, more importantly, um, the needs of businesses. Um, and the reason for that is that businesses uh, need more power, and they also uh, can use it to be much more productive, so to basically to create jobs, to use machinery, to extend their working hours, and that brings much more income uh, and uh, economic activity into these rural areas. So the technology we're using is a uh, hybrid, so uh, we're using a combination of biomass gasification, which allows you to transform agricultural waste um, that's available abundantly locally into uh, clean electricity, a char that's used for soil amendment purposes, and waste heat uh, that also has various applications in uh, rural areas. So we use these uh, biomass gasifiers to generate AC power and then we uh, hybridize that so we combine it with PV systems. So those are uh, commercial solar systems um, and we integrate those for various reasons. The first is that um, it basically increases the reliability of the system since you have two different types of generation. Uh, and secondly, it makes it more cost-effective, so we can provide electricity at slightly lower tariffs as a result of having these um, this sort of hybrid generation model. Right, um, right, 
That's very yeah. interesting because th this hybrid, thinking about the hybrid aspect, bringing together these different technologies. Are, are there others doing this? Um, and uh, where, where did you get the idea for this? And, and also, um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, what, what, what is the magnitude of the, the, the benefit in terms of the cost side of things? Um, yeah, so of course, I mean, there are quite a lot of decentralized energy operators around the world. Um, it started, you know, in the sort of military context, actually, trying to be independent of the grid. Um, and now it's spread to a lot of different uh, off-grid rural areas. In India, there are a couple of others, but mainly they tend to focus on one type of generation, so typically solar, and there have been a couple of, um, you know, companies that have used gasification. The hybrid generation model has been seen in a couple of uh, companies that we know of but not very frequently. And I think, uh, especially, I think it really started from the academic literature, to be honest, people doing techno-economic models to work out what would be the most affordable type of generation for a given village, uh, worked out that if you use a combination, it would be more cost-effective. Um, and so we've seen some, you know, deployments and that are operational, but not too many to date. And uh, the reason we adopted a hybrid model is because initially we were focused only on converting agricultural waste but then having spent, uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot of changes as well in terms of declining costs of solar, uh, but having spent quite a bit of time in the field, uh, you know, visiting both solar and biomass installations, we realized that, you know, there are advantages to both. Um, so, for example, using gasification means you produce AC power that's really useful for businesses and um, also can be used uh, where the grid is already there. So people have appliances that run on AC power but might need more reliable power, which is almost always the case um, because the grid is only available for a couple of hours a day. Um, and then if we if we instead, so that's one system we're type, planning to build is these hybrid systems, but what I didn't mention is we're also looking at pure solar systems, so those are just DC. Uh, and those are uh, actually more cost-effective for households uh, that are completely off-grid, so where the electricity consumption is fairly limited, it's quite low, you know, mainly um, bulbs and phone charging units and fans, that kind of thing. Uh, and so in that case, it makes more sense to stick to a DC system. Right. Uh, in terms right. of the exact cost savings, it really does depend. Uh, I mean, all of the work we do is very site-specific. So it requires you to have an understanding of, you know, what's the demand, uh, what's the sort of, uh, you know, community structure and the demand profile of a given site, and then to really design the system around that. Um, the idea being that, obviously, there are quite a lot of similarities between um, you know, end consumers in different, even in different villages, different areas of the state. So uh, building a model that's, you know, becomes more uh, scalable would mean that we have models that can be reproduced. So obviously, you know, so it is, for the very small uh, solar DC systems, it's very simple. Then for larger industries, we have to take into account exactly how many appliances they have and so on. Um, yeah, so right. that's the generation yes. side. Then yeah. uh, should I speak a bit about the uh, distribution side? Because we're in entering into some uh, technical innovation in that space as well. Right, yeah. Why don't we have a quick look at that? Yes, please. Yeah, so uh, once the electricity is generated, of course, it must be um, distributed, so transmitted and distributed to end consumers. Um, and usually that's done through what's called the mini grid, um, so basically a miniaturized grid. Um, so what we're doing is building smart grids. Uh, which means that we're integrating ICT, so uh, smart meters, typically into these grids to make them um, to make them remotely monitorable, so that we can send data back uh, and access it remotely, so we can prevent downtime. Um, it also means we can make mobile payments possible, so that customers can prepay for their energy. Um, and uh, finally, it gives us a lot of valuable data that we can then use to inform, you know, how much find out, for example, how much uh, demand has changed over time, and therefore be able to better size um, the next systems that we build. 
Um, and so, of course, these smart meters are already on the market in quite a lot of areas. They're being used uh, for not, not necessarily in off-grid energy. That's starting to happen now. But we're working with partners to really push the costs down because um, that's you know, obviously a really important aspect in serving these low-income communities is yes. being able to make sure it doesn't bring the cost of the grid up too much. Right, that's very interesting. And what's the scale of your operations at the moment? Where are you in, 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 in terms of overall development of an offering of, of products and services? Um, so as of now, we are preparing for our pilot, uh, which is scheduled for March next year. And for the first pilot, we are working with a partner organization that is going to be our EPC partner. So they're supplying the equipment and also uh, consulting us on installation and commissioning of the first system. Uh, other than that, we have other uh, ground partners. So these are local NGOs that are making connections with the local communities. Of course, uh, the government. Uh, so that is the state and the local government over there. Um, so yeah, we are on track for our pilot and uh, everything goes well. We will uh, be launching in uh, March, April next year. That sounds great. That's great. Well, what have been some of the challenges you've had on your on the journey from? So you, you when you had the initial idea, you did some ground uh, research and, and you know, spoke to some communities and got a better sense of uh, you know what their needs were. Um, what have been the biggest challenges you faced since then? Well, there have been quite a few challenges given there are so many moving parts to make this a reality. Uh, one of the challenges I think early on we encountered was navigating through the regulatory environment in India. Uh, so there have been lots of uh, changes in the legislation over the last decade and there have been a lot of conflicting uh, sort of legislations between the center and the state. Uh, even though uh, power in India is a state subject, the center keeps interfering with it. So it was never clear what really applies if private players can you know, step in and if they do, are we regulated, are tariffs regulated or not? So yeah, that has, and we did look for organizations that work together with government to, you know, help utilities or even, uh, you know, players uh, providing decentralized energy. But again, there was no clarity on, you know, uh, what the regulatory environment really is for us. Um, slowly, uh, having built some relationships with both the central government, uh, that is specifically the Ministry of New and Renewable Energy, and then at the state level, the Power Ministry, now we have some clarification. Uh, and recently, Uttar Pradesh, that's where our pilot location is, uh, they came out with a new policy that is quite favorable to us that wants to promote, uh, you know, private decentralized energy providers, uh, specifically using uh, both biomass and uh, solar as on the generation side. Uh, so it does offer uh, capital subsidies to us uh, and other uh, resources uh, to set up our energy uh, plants. Right. We're going to take advantage of that, of course. Yes, absolutely. And so that's um, one of the challenges. The other challenges, of course, given the Indian context where um, there are too many things at play. So it's, of course, low income communities, affordability is a problem. But then more than that, I think it's also the social and the traditional values and systems and, uh, you know, people uh, not changing their traditional behaviors. So the idea to go there and say this is what you need uh, without understanding their their needs uh, problem could be counterproductive. Uh, so there are social, uh, you know, so there are religious relationships, there are, uh, you know, caste systems embedded into that system. You have within the same village, you have segregated societies. Uh, so to bring everyone on board has been a, quite a challenge as well. 
uh, but we are working around that. And then, uh, uh, so related to that, we also wanted to bring as many women as possible into our value chain. And given the status of women in India, uh, where it's a male-dominated society, so that hasn't been easy as well. Even while we did our interviews and group discussions, the women were prevented from like voicing their opinions. Uh, we wanted to learn more from them. Uh, so yeah, that is another challenge that we constantly face in these rural communities. Right. I can imagine um, that, as you say, the, the, the complex on the ground um, and, and uh, the existing kind of ecosystem and ways of doing things and uh, bringing in new ideas is, is challenging, is very challenging. Um, can you um, tell me a little bit about your vision for where do, you, where, where do you want to be in three to five years and have you thought about scaling and what, what is your model? Yeah, of course. So right now, obviously, we're in the pilot stage. Uh, so that means the first couple of plants we'll be building, you know, we'll be owning and operating and collecting data from uh, so that we can, you know, basically refine, um, verify that our business model and our, our all of our other projections and assumptions have been correct uh, and then scale from there. So what we plan to do from there is to, um, rather than using an energy service company model, which is what most um, energy providers do, we're looking at using a franchise model. So we would sell or lease the plants to um, franchisees that might be you know, existing entrepreneurs or could be uh, groups of people like women self-help groups that are already very active uh, in rural India. So we'll be um, passing on ownership of the systems to the community itself and they would be then selling the end products to end consumers like the households, businesses, farmers and so on. Great. Um, very so interesting, very interesting how much innovation you've built in or you're approaching um, innovation both in terms of the, you know, the hybrid nature, in terms of the distribution and also in terms of the business model. be interested to get your views on, on that, um, you know, on, on the importance you believe in innovation and how you've approached that. Well, the challenges that we're trying to address are so huge that it doesn't really make sense to, um, you know, to be purely technology driven in this case. Or uh, So what we started out by doing, of course, is by looking at specific technology, which was converting agricultural waste into electricity. But we've actually developed, you know, a much more complex model around that of how we could actually make that financially viable. And what are all of the different elements that we need to have in place or, you know, stakeholders that we need to have on board for this to actually work? Uh, and for it to be a long-term success. So it's not as easy as just building a power plant and then dis disappearing. Um, you know, all the structures need to be in place so that it's well-maintained, it's operating, and you're collecting payments on time so that, you know, people get the service that they expect from this kind of system uh, and that it's running, you know, for a long period. Um, so we also tend to be quite collaborative as well. We think it's important to work together with other uh, partners. So it could be on the technical side, it could be for financing, um, in order to be able to really scale our impact. Um, so yeah, while we're building the first um, roughly 10 plants in the next year, we expect to reach 250 in the next five years. Uh, and that also works obviously through um, being able to become, to tap into institutional investments and receive um, debt and equity participation. So uh, we've structured our model such that that um, is possible. And um, yeah, like we said, we're working with other partners to you know uh, speed up the development of technologies that we need um, for this to work. So for example, on the smart metering side, or also improving the valorization of other products that we get through the biomass classification system so that everything becomes slightly more cost effective. Uh, so those are all the sort of parallel um, works we have in progress. Of course, you know, right now the focus is primarily on the pilot. But we think it's important to really have those uh, collaborative, um, that collaborative um, sort of attitude so that things really get done more quickly and you can have a much larger impact. 
Great, great. This franchising model, is, is it new? Are other people doing it? Where have they done it? And, and how, how have you been thinking about that? Yeah, so the franchise model has been tried in some of the other sectors. Uh, so within the whole social entrepreneurship ecosystem, it has been tried. We haven't seen evidence of it in the energy sector. Uh, and so, yeah, we are borrowing the sort of the model from other sectors, but I, we think obviously with certain uh, customization and tweaks, I think it's uh, it can be applicable to the energy sector as well. And that's what we are testing, are going to be testing with our second and third pilot. Right. right. And what is the scale of each of these pilots? How, how much energy will you be generating and how, what, what kind of size of community would it serve? Uh, yeah, so for the two products that we were talking about earlier, so for the hybrid systems, those are um, typically around 30 to 40 kilowatts, and those will serve uh, up to 60 businesses, uh, 100 to 150 households, and then uh, depending on the type of businesses as well, they could also be um, farmers, so using irrigation pumps, uh, so in that case we'd be selling water as a service rather than electricity. Um, then, in terms of the smaller systems, those are the solar DC ones. Uh, there, we're looking more on the sort of tens up to a hundred households, uh, and then the main uh, productive users would be things like irrigation pumps again. Um, and those are, you know, fairly small, so they can range between about two and ten kilowatts. Um, and again, the size is dependent on obviously the um, where the community is. You know, how many people are willing to sign up, but also what the uh, consumption profile looks like. So. If it uh, if there's a lot of businesses already present, we probably build a hybrid system. If there if it's mostly an off-grid household, um, which has absolutely no access to any electricity at the moment, we'd probably be building a DC system. Um, yeah, so those are the two types of generation models we're looking at at the moment. Very interesting. Very interesting. And tell me, um, what kind of support have you had on this journey? I mean, uh, financially, uh, clearly, but also helping to you know focus your ideas and just resources to develop and uh, understand and plan your, your your expansion um so yeah we've had a lot of support actually uh, right after we planned this uh, business uh, like two years ago we were supported by climate cake uh, we entered into their pre-incubation program here in london called the greenhouse we were provided with a mentor who was really good uh, and he helped us develop our first financial projections, business plan, strategy, et cetera, et cetera. And within six months of that, we happened to win the Echoing Green Climate Fellowship uh, in June 2015. And uh, that's when we really got our first seed money coming in, uh, which was very helpful in meeting our operating costs. And since then, uh, we've entered into a several uh, business uh, competitions. Some of those we've won, so uh, some of the money has come from there. More recently, we received an academic grant here in the UK. So that's more on the, so yeah, so we've relied mostly on uh, philanthropic capital grants and business uh, competition awards so far uh, as we prepare for our pilot. Uh, other than that, we've received support in terms of pro bono uh, legal advice, pro bono accounting, uh, you know, uh, incorporating in India and here in, in the UK, uh, just uh, access to different networks. Uh, so we also were selected for uh, uh, an incubation program called the Mass Challenge here in UK, which was a three month program. And that was very useful as well, uh, you know, uh, getting access to resources and networks. Uh, 
introduction to uh, potential investors. Uh, so yeah, uh, all around, uh, yeah, people have been very helpful in the ecosystem. Uh, and we've received a lot of support, both in terms of, uh, uh, you know, potential investors, but also other resources. Great, great. Are you a for-profit or not-for-profit? Uh, no, we register as a, as a for-profit private limited company. Uh, so we are a for-profit social enterprise. Right, right. And can you tell me a little bit about the, the process of, of, of getting grants and, and you know, uh, raising philanthropic money? Um, what do you mean uh, in terms of the process? Yeah, a little bit about, you know, uh, how have you found that? Has it been easy? Have you... Uh, have you learned that some 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 organizations or some kinds of organizations are more or less appropriate? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, w what lessons have you from? Yeah, so obviously we, we do some sort of due diligence of the ecosystem, uh, you know, uh, and then see who is interested in some, you know energy finance and that too for decentralized energy. And in some cases, it's a competitive application process, and you know we go through the several rounds and uh, interviews, etc. Uh, in other cases, it's like approaching these, uh, you know, sort of family foundations or other foundations and asking if they will be interested. In some cases, we get approached by them, uh, given we have had some visibility now in, uh, in you know, generally uh, across uh, social, me social media, but also traditional media. Uh, so, yeah, it's case by case. Uh, in some cases, yeah, they get in touch with us and then they want to run a due diligence on us. Uh, some others that we've spoken to would like to wait till our pilot is underway and uh, we've had our first users. Uh, so it's been a combination of, you know, uh, uh, different things available in this ecosystem, really. Right. It's interesting that the, uh, always interesting to hear the experience of social entrepreneurs trying to raise money pre-pilot, um, you know, what, what their experience has been, how easy or difficult it is, how much time they've spent and, whether they, you know, time is a scarce resource in the very early stages and whether or not, you know, there are particular avenues that you would recommend or not for other social entrepreneurs in this situation. Yeah, I think it really depends on time scale. So for us, obviously, being energy being very capital intensive, you know, there's quite a long preparation period, especially also given the fact that we're working in rural areas, which, you know, invokes other um, challenges that I addressed earlier. Um, but yeah, so because we had that advantage of, you know, having, we need quite a lot of time to prepare for actually building and installing a system. So we could afford that sort of, typically there's a longer delay, um, you know, in waiting, you know, it's not only sending grant applications, but also going through the due diligence process or being interviewed or uh, whatever else the process might entail and then finally receiving that money. Um, so I think that's the biggest caveat for that type of funding. But like I mentioned, you know, we were often, uh, you know, one thing led to another. We were introduced to other, you know, people in the ecosystem who were able to then suggest other grants. So that has served us quite well um, for now. But obviously, you know, going forward, if you really want to scale it or impact that is when you, we're going to need to use a different type of funding, of course. Right. And have you been talking to uh, investors that might be interested in putting equity in? Yeah, so um, in our case, I mean, the most important thing I think is going to be to have uh, something on the ground. So uh, a, a plant that's been installed for at least a couple months sending back data so we can uh, verify all the assumptions we have around um, how much revenue we'll be collecting, what will the consumption be, how is it projected to increase. Um, so yeah, so we've been talking to you know a couple of potential equity investors um, 
in terms of, you know, also what they're interested in, of course, is also how do we scale this up. So once we have, um, that's why it's so important for the financials to be really sound so that we can then, uh, you know, demonstrate that going forward, we would be able to scale by, you know, tenfold or hundredfold or whatever uh, in the next couple of years. Great, great. And you mentioned this uh, collaborative approach that you have. Um, how, how has that been? It is a challenge when, when I guess you've got your nose to grindstone and you're trying to solve particular problems. Um, working with other, you know, takes time and uh, it can be challenging to collaborate. Can you talk a little bit about how you, what your experience has been? Yeah, so it depends what type of collaboration. Um, in our case, so, I mean, of course, there's also a due diligence process you would do with partners, right? So um, we've been quite fortunate in some cases because we have essentially in reaching out to lots of people within the energy or decentralized energy ecosystem, we were often introduced to people working in very similar areas. Um, and, you know, we've taken the time to actually go visit some of their installations and understand really, you know, in depth how their model works and, uh, you know, also be able to have a bit of critical distance of what we think people have done right or what could be improved, uh, what, what's worked really well. And so to be able to work together on either um, sharing those experiences, that could be, you know, a sort of more basic form of collaboration, even getting feedback um, all the way up to, um, you know, co-developing technical solutions. And that, of course, is something that takes a lot of time. As do as all you know R and D or technical development, but I guess the advantage in this case is that for both parties it enables you to shorten the time and it also enables you to reduce the costs. Um, so yeah, I think it's you know a little bit. I think the the important thing is to really choose your partners right um, from the beginning and really uh, make sure that you have long term goals that are the same, and then identify you know what are the strengths or weaknesses of both organizations and see where you could fill in gaps. Uh, because otherwise, like you said, if you form the wrong partners and you're relying on the wrong people, then it could really slow you down as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the next few months, then you're the the, the focus is getting this pilot um, uh, finalized. That's right. So uh, in terms of the pilot, we already have a site. Uh, partner organization has been there to wet wet the place, so we can design the system. Uh, I will soon be uh, relocating to our pilot location. Uh, and signing up customers, uh, building the tariff plans, uh, you know, getting the land, we lease the land that we need to install these systems. Uh, so basically, I get everything uh, prepared for the equipment to arrive and the installation to happen. Uh, and then I'll have our operations uh, director joining me there as well, uh, you know, so that we can ensure that everything is in place before the equipment arrives for installation. Right, right. And can you talk a little bit about pricing? I mean, are there uh, competitors or other alternatives, should we say, that, you know, in sources of energy? Presumably, in some cases, it's kerosene. And um, what, are, what are the economic kind of uh, situation facing consumers? Yeah, so our closest competitors are actually these fossil fuels that you just mentioned, both kerosene and diesel. Uh, kerosene is currently being used by household members uh, for lighting purposes and diesel is being used by uh, others uh, uh, for commercial use, uh, so by businesses. And this is what we are hoping to replace, of course. And the economics basically looks like this. If we were to replace diesel, uh, we cut tariffs by almost half. And on, on kerosene side, of course, there's a huge subsidy available to these households in India. Uh, but despite that, uh, if we are able to replace kerosene use uh, per month, I think they still remain at the same level of, uh, you know, their bills will be pretty much the same uh, as they're spending right now. Right, right. 
And in terms of sales and marketing, then I, I suppose having uh, early adopters or people who will use the technology and then being able to showcase those. Have you been thinking about that? Um, yeah, so one thing we're thinking about is um, doing sort of village roadshows where we would be, uh, you know, talking about the benefits of clean energy and replacing kerosene lamps with, uh, you know, efficient appliances, for example, because it might seem obvious to us, you know, who have access to an interrupted supply of energy and as many appliances as we could wish for. But, um, you know, I think people might not always be aware of the either the health or safety benefits, but also the financial benefits to them of switching to a cleaner energy source. Um, so when we've been interviewing people in the communities, you know, they have a lot of, obviously they have direct experience of how um, harmful, you know, for example, burning kerosene lamps indoors can be to their own health or their vision and so on and that of their children. But, um, you know, there's other benefits as well in terms of the brightness, the safety. Um, so, you know, we're, we're thinking of um, making people, making sure people really are aware of those and knowing what they're, what they're buying and, you know, what's the advantage of having a, a really bright bulb instead of something that's you know half the quality for example yes, um, yes but then we've also found that people are essentially um you know they've been ready to receive electricity access for decades now so um you know we found that there's always as soon as people know that we're sort of um you know in the village or or in the area we typically find even people come over from neighboring villages to talk to us and to ask for electricity to come to their village next so in that sense word of mouth really does the job Obviously, going forward, you know, when we try to operate at a larger scale, then we will be engaging in more um, targeted forms of, you know, sales and marketing, like advertising at, um, on village walls, for example, uh, or through local print and the radio and that kind of thing. Right. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Maybe just one final question. You mentioned the incubator. I know, Amit, you will have had, uh, you know, substantial business experience. I'm just wondering, that aside from the network and contacts, which are invaluable, I've no doubt, how useful was the incubator, uh, and, and I think you, you mentioned uh, more than one, but in terms of uh, helping you think about uh, you know, what you wanted to do and, and, and plan it, and uh, just think about the, the business and, and, and planning skills and that kind of thing, and, and, and you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so they have been quite useful in that respect as well. They've always been willing to look at our business plan, our financial projections, and help us refine those or suggest other uh, business models that we could look at and compare and see or even borrow some ideas from other business models to integrate into our own business model. So in that respect, they've been uh, pretty useful. Uh, a lot of times they help us connect with experts in the field, uh, you know, both in the energy side, also from a social, socio-economic, uh, you know, uh, sort of understanding of in the Indian context. Uh, so yeah, that has helped us really refine our, uh, you know, both uh, business plan and distribution model. So uh, that's what I would say. Besides the connections and the network, that's where they've been useful to us. Right, great. Well, it's it sounds like a very exciting project. And uh, you've got great momentum now with the pilot, and I'm sure you're very excited about this uh, really important stage and getting the information and getting data uh, on the ground. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience, your insights, your journey. It's been uh, very, very interesting and, 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 and useful, and I wish you the very best of success in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much, yeah, and thank you for your time as well. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, Incubated Initiatives, 
thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st. You can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.